This morning's reading is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. That's on page 1128 of the Church Bible. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress, who, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even though women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fiona. There are, there are some readings, aren't there, which are, you dread getting on the, on the reading rotor because it's got difficult words in them. And there are other readings which you come across and think, oh, this is quite a heavy one to have to read in church. You can see um, why I, I particularly wanted to pray before we started and thought about these things this morning. And it would be a real help, um, as always, if you could keep that reading open in front of you, have a Bible in view. I think it's page 1,128. I don't know about you, I don't think I ever managed to watch the whole of the film Titanic, um, which is quite an old film now, isn't it? I think it's about 25 years um, ago that it came out, but I think it was something like three and a quarter hours long. And I know it's a beautiful love story, and I know it won a whole bunch of awards, but it just seemed to be a long time for a film where you, you knew where it was heading right from the start, which of course was to the bottom of the, the North Atlantic, wasn't it? And uh, that is the thing with Titanic, isn't it? In cinematic terms, it doesn't half take a long time to sink. And at the same time, there is an awful sense of ine inevitability from the moment the ship hits the iceberg. And yet, despite this, despite the fact that the ship is doomed from that point of collision onwards, uh, and famously, there weren't enough lifeboats on board the ship for all the people who were there, Despite this, many of the passengers refused to listen to the warnings that were given, at first at least. He didn't feel like the ship was sinking. It's the Titanic. It's supposed to be unsinkable. And so they wanted to continue enjoying the voyage and not to be disturbed by the warnings that were beginning to come from various people. 
Last week, we started the book of Romans. And uh, we read that verse, which I read a few moments ago, in fact, which sets the theme for the whole of this letter, this whole book. If you want a kind of summary verse for Romans, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1 is a pretty good place to start. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But of course, not everyone wants to hear that, do they? Like passengers on the Titanic who refuse to believe that the ship is going to sink, that there might be a real danger. Some people hear a verse like that and say, well, why do we need good news about salvation? I don't need saving, thank you very much. I don't need a rescue. Uh, Why are you talking about the gospel being the source of righteousness? Are you saying that I'm not righteous? Uh, Are you saying that I'm a sinner? How dare you say something like that? But of course, that is exactly what Paul is saying. And that's because... It is part of what the gospel of Jesus is all about, bringing hope to sinners in danger of judgment, which is all of us. And yet, unsurprisingly, it's not a message that people are often keen to hear. Now, Romans is a long book, isn't it? And in the chapters that follow, Paul will expand on the beauty of the gospel. Um, He'll write in a couple of chapters about how it is possible that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can give hope, not just to individual believers, but in fact to the whole of creation awaiting its redemption. But in order to be able to express this amazing and beautiful hope clearly, we first need to understand why we all do need rescuing. And that is what Paul does in this second half of chapter 1, and in fact through chapter 2 and into chapter 3 as well. And it's why these are not easy or comfortable verses to read, And believe me, I would love to choose another passage for this morning's service uh, or to have looked at the rotor and found someone else down for this week. And yet at the same time, I'm grateful that St. Luke's has this long tradition of preaching through a book and of taking it in terms terms of what comes next. Uh, Another vicar I've heard call, call that giving God the microphone. And we can't just pick and choose the bits that we like. And I also want to say that what's happening here in these verses and in chapter 2, it's a bit like, you know when a jeweller takes a diamond ring and places it on a kind of black velvet background to show to you, um, so that against the black, uh, the, kind of the, 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 the diamond shines more brightly, it sparkles, and you can appreciate the quality of the stone all the more better. There's a sense in, in which what Paul is doing here is setting the gospel against the background of what people are like, the background of human behavior, so that we can appreciate it fully for the good thing that it is. And over the next couple of chapters, Paul will show that everyone needs God's rescue. He particularly focuses on Gentiles uh, in these verses, and then on the Jews in chapter 2. That was a big issue in the first century. How can both Jews and Gentiles be part of one family of God together on what basis? Um, The point being that that no one of whatever nation, can claim to be right in God's eyes without his help. So, why do we need the gospel? Why do we need rescuing? Well, verse 16, as I said, has told us that Jesus has the power of God to rescue us. That's been revealed. And verse 17, that the gospel of Jesus has revealed God's righteousness in rescuing people. We will come back to that question in a couple of chapters' time. It's kind of the fairness question which people sometimes ask, how can it be fair, how can it be just and right that Jesus takes our sin upon himself 
and we get to receive his righteousness from God. How can that be right? We'll come back to that in chapter 3. Thirdly, though, here in verse 18, the reason this rescue is needed is because the third thing being revealed from God is his wrath from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Bluntly, God is angry with our sin, with the actions of people, all people, who so often ignore him and cause damage to his good creation. Well, here is the first reason why this is not a popular passage, I think it's fair to say. We don't like the idea of God's wrath, do we? That is not how we like to imagine him. Um, His anger goes against the grain. And I just want to say that we need to remember that God's anger is not like our anger. Uh, We all get angry sometimes, don't we? Um, Sometimes we we lose our rag. Um, Sometimes other people get angry with us. Uh, sometimes quite seriously. And some of us will have caused hurt or have been hurt by anger in one way or another. And while there can be such a thing as righteous anger, all too often human anger is selfish and harmful. Sometimes it can even be abusive, can't it? God's anger is not like our anger. And we need to be so careful that we don't take our own experiences of human wrath, maybe it's our own, maybe it's someone else's, and project that onto God and assume that he is like us. God is not selfish, is he? He is self-giving. He is not harmful. He is holy. He is never abusive. He's the God who takes abuse upon himself for the benefit of others. And when the Bible speaks of his anger or his wrath, it's kind of the flip side of his holiness. God doesn't lose his temper, but his wrath is his kind of his settled opposition to everything in his world which is not as it should be. Everything that causes harm or pain. The things that he hates. He's angry with these things. And I want to say we should be glad that he's angry with them because otherwise he would do nothing about them and we would be left... Uh, living forever in a world that is spoiled by suffering and death, marred by violence and war. But God hates all that. He's angry with it, and he does something about it. The thing is, though, the cause of it all that needs doing something about is people. And it's people like me and people like you. Because if we look at the next few verses, we're reminded that the, the, the last thing that God has revealed after his power verse 16, his righteousness, verse 17, his anger, verse 18. In verses 19 and 20 is God has revealed his glory in creation. He has shown us what he's like. And Paul's speaking particularly to Gentiles here, so perhaps people who don't know the Old Testament scriptures, they haven't heard what Moses has said and all the prophets, but Paul says to them, it's still there in front of your nose. Verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, they've been clearly seen. How? You can understand them, says Paul, from all that he has made. In other words, look at the world. Look at creation. See how it works. See the love and the design and the beauty that is there in God's world. How do you think it all happened? Where do you think it all came from? It's all there, says Paul. There isn't any excuse. The one who made it has revealed himself through what he has made. The anger of God is against the people who should know better. He has spoken in that way. 
And what Paul then says about human worship of idols in place of God's glory and all the, the wickedness and brokenness that it leads to is a kind of, it's kind of a parallel with, and it's a commentary on, Genesis chapter 3 and the description of the fall and Adam and Eve's disobedience against God. Uh, and Paul says, verse 21, for although they knew God as human beings, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images made like humans uh, or animals or reptiles. So that's the problem. How does it all work out? Well, then we get to the second reason why this is such a difficult and often unpopular passage. Because the working example that Paul starts with is about sex, and particularly around the area of homosexual sex. And some people feel very angry with these verses. And other people just feel uncomfortable talking about them in 2022. And maybe one of those describes how you feel as we read them this morning. Uh, now, of course, we've been thinking more closely around the whole area of identity and relationships and sex and marriage on Tuesday evenings in our Home Groups Together series. And we've got more time to do that there than I have this morning, which is why I don't want to focus entirely on this or make it uh, the main thing that this passage is all about. But I do want us to be aware of a couple of things as we come to a passage like this. Um, one is just to be honest as we recognise that what the Bible says about sex and about relationships very often is not unclear. And it's very much out of step with the culture that we live in, isn't it? Um, reading this stuff sounds, at best, weird to many people in 2022. The other thing, though, is to acknowledge that the church has often failed to welcome LGBT people and has failed to treat them kindly and well. And these are attitudes and actions that where they are seen and displayed need repentance. Um, sometimes gay people have found themselves singled out in the church as being somehow different. Um, their sin being viewed by, by some as if it's somehow worse than other kinds of sin. That is not what Paul is saying here. It's not what the Bible says anywhere. It's not the attitude of Jesus. Um, that said... I don't think the reason that most people find this a problem passage is because it's hard to understand. I think these verses are offensive to many because they're all too straightforward in what they say. Um, the traditional understanding of what Paul says here is entirely in line with what the Bible consistently says about sex. Um, because as we've been saying on Tuesday evenings, the Bible has such a high view of sex uh, built into the whole story of creation and new creation, uh, from Adam and Eve in Genesis right through to the end of the book of Revelation. And the call to Christians is to be married and faithful, or single and celibate. And this is not easy, is it? It was not easy in the first century. In Roman culture, where that would seriously go against the grain. And it's not easy in 2022. But what Paul says here does fit very closely with what is said about sex and marriage throughout the Bible. And so despite the best attempts by some interpreters to say, actually, these verses mean something different, I just don't think we can go there. I don't buy that argument. Come on Tuesdays if you want to think some more about those verses. But this morning, in a, a relatively short sermon, 
I don't want us to lose focus on the bigger picture of what Paul is saying about why we need the gospel here, which is actually focused on many things, and most of them have got nothing to do with sex. But all of them are about how we as people so easily go our own way instead of listening to our loving Father God. And the next thing to say with this is that the way judgment works out in practice, as Paul explains it here, is exactly that. God lets us go our own way. Um, In the end, what Paul is saying is that if we insist on ignoring God and on the things he's said to us in creation, then he lets us have what we have chosen as an element of, of allowing human freedom in this. And that's the meaning of that repeated phrase in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28. You probably noticed it. Therefore, God gave them over to their desires, verse 24, to their lusts, verse 26, to a depraved mind, verse 28. Um, Every week in church, we pray the Lord's Prayer, don't we? And we pray that radical line that we kind of say without even thinking about it most of the time, your will be done. In the old version, thy will be done. Now, that is a hard prayer to pray and to take seriously because, of course, what it implies is not my will be done but your will be done. And that goes against the grain, doesn't it? For all humans, for all people, not just for you and me, for everyone since the time of Adam and Eve in the garden. Every human except one. Every human except Jesus Christ. The one man who had every right to demand to do things his own way, because he hadn't done anything wrong, of course, is the one man who in the garden on the night before he dies, getting ready to go to the cross, prays, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus longs for us all to yield to his will, to listen to his voice, not because he's power crazy, but because he loves us and he wants what is best for all of us. But in the end, given our persistent refusal to listen to what God has plainly said, Paul warns that there is God's judgment. And perhaps it's not what you would expect. You know, there's no fire from heaven, is there, in these verses? There's no thunderbolt or anything like that. What is the judgment of God here? Well, it's this. To a people who refuse to listen, God says to them in the end, and with deep sadness, all right, have it your own way. Your will be done. And that's something of what that phrase, he gave them over, implies. It's God operating, if you like, not by intervention, but by non-intervention. Instead of stepping in to override all the chaos, override all of our choices, He lets men and women go our own way with all the implications that come with that. Now, depending on exactly how you count them, it's a pretty hard passage to read, isn't it? I reckon there are about 23 different ways listed in these verses um, where sinful human behavior and the rejection of God's ways leads people in different ways. As I said before, the vast majority of them have nothing to do with sex. It's a passage which plumbs the depths of sheer human creativity and ingenuity in finding ways to not listen to what God has said. Verse 29, they're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. That would be enough, but it goes on. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, 
no mercy. It is a terrible list. It is one of the hardest parts of the New Testament to read. And this, says Paul, is where we end up when God gives us over to the implications of our rejection of him. And if that is where we were left, it would be a terrible place. He says in verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And I wonder, um, aren't there some things here that perhaps we need to take more seriously and be more offended by? I understand why we home in on one particular aspect of this passage. I guess because it's so countercultural. But you know what? Do we care equally as much about gossip or about boasting or about slander? Do we take honouring our parents seriously enough? Um, Interestingly, I think there are things here in the list in Romans 1 which reflect pretty much all of the Ten Commandments. Perhaps that shouldn't be surprising. There is a lot for us to think about, and particularly to think about how we so easily judge one another. Because isn't it so easy to spot a particular sin in someone else's life which might be different to mine, and to look down on that person? This is the mess we're in, Paul says. He doesn't mince his words. Jesus never minces his words when it comes to the seriousness of our predicament. Why are all these things in the Bible, though? Let's just ask that question. Why does God do this? Doesn't he love us? And the answer, actually, is yes. That is why all this stuff is here. Because these are the words of a father's love for his children. The words of a God who looks at his world and sees the mess that we're in. First of all, wants to show us that mess so that he can do something about it. It's like a father watching his children in a river, playing obliviously to the fact that the river is flowing towards a great waterfall and they're going to go over the edge. A father who will do whatever he needs to do to call them out and, if necessary, to dive in and pull them out. Um, I said that the people who ignore the danger in some ways are a bit like the passengers on the Titanic, refusing to listen to the warnings. Didn't want to know that the ship was sinking. Here's the difference. There weren't enough lifeboats on the Titanic. But the rescue offered by Jesus at the cross is more than enough for every human being, every man, woman and child who asks him for forgiveness. These are hard words, but that is the gospel, which is the power of God. And that is the good news, which shines like a diamond against the dark background of our rejection of him. And finally, while I know there are some people who don't think they need rescuing by God, probably not here this morning, I'm also well aware that there are others who just feel guilty and who read words like this and somewhere in there will be something that resonates and it just brings out the sense of shame and feeling unworthy and feeling terrible. Maybe you recognise something there which just has a little ring of truth somewhere. And if that is you, please will you remember Verse 17, that in what Jesus has done, the righteousness of God has been revealed. He isn't polite about us, about what we're like. He looks at us and he knows us and he loves us. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, that righteousness that is revealed there in verse 17 is yours by faith. And when God looks at his children who trust in him, he doesn't see the things which we've got wrong. He doesn't see the ways we have rejected him. In the end, 
he sees the goodness and the righteousness of his son, Jesus. That is yours if you are a Christian believer and it cannot be taken away. You don't need to confess the same things twice. They are dealt with at the cross. And so if you've done Christianity Explored, as I know many of us have here at some point over the years, some of us quite a number of times, you may remember one of the phrases which recurs through that reading of Mark's Gospel, which kind of sums this up. Um, You are more sinful than you ever realized, but you are more loved by God than you ever dared dream. And this is the God who Paul loves, because he rescued even him, this man, who went out to persecute the people who followed Jesus Christ. Uh, Well, there are many more things that we could say about a passage like this. Um, I hope that begins to open it up in a helpful way. And if you've got questions, we can talk some more over coffee in a few minutes. Uh, But let me pray. And then we are going to sing again. And we're going to sing a song which just reminds us of the depth of the Father's love for the people he has made. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we read words like this and and they are hard. Uh, We recognize ourselves in them in some ways. We recognize that they're offensive to some of our friends and people who we love, as well as others in our society. We know that sometimes it's hard not to read what you've said in your word and find it embarrassing. And yet, Lord, we also recognize in this something of your great love that you, you don't hold back. Uh, like a doctor giving a clear diagnosis. You, You want us to understand the severity of where our sin leads us. But Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us there and that you came to earth, that you did your Father's will and you have won for us this amazing salvation. And Lord, I want to pray especially for any who are here this morning who read these words and feel condemned. Lord, that we would all know your salvation and your love for sinners, for people like all of us. And so help us, Lord, to to walk with you and to know the work of your Spirit in our hearts changing us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.